This is World Beyond War, a new podcast. Welcome. Every episode of the World Beyond War podcast is unique, but this one is special in a different way because two of the three guests we're about to speak to are in the middle of a kind of protest action that shows just how deep the personal stakes can go for activists. I'm your host, Mark Elliott Stein, coming to you as always from Brooklyn, New York. Our broad focus today is Canada's fast-growing anti-war movement, and I'm happy to bring onto the podcast for the first time World Beyond War's newest staffer, Rachel Small, who's been quite active as our Canada organizer and has kicked off some feisty protest actions this year, which we will be talking about. Before joining World Beyond War, Rachel was active with the Mining Injustice Solidarity Network and has a master's degree in environmental studies from York University. Hi, Rachel. Hi, thanks for having me. Our next two guests are both with the No Fighter Jets Coalition, and we're going to hear a lot about this. Most significantly, both of these guests have been on a fast to protest Canada's latest moves towards militarism. Vanessa Lantaine is a restorative justice and peace advocate and is the national coordinator of the Canadian Voice of Women for Peace and has been fasting for 12 days. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Mark. Great to be here. Brendan Martin is a medical doctor, a family practitioner, and a member of the Vancouver chapter of World Beyond War and is also on day 12 of a fast to protest Canada's purchase of 88 jets. Brendan, when I first heard of this protest action, which has been in the news this month, you were the first face I saw, the first person who committed to fasting as an act of protest. So hello, Brendan, and how are you doing today? Uh, doing well, Mark. Thank you very much. How are you both doing? And please tell us what it means to be fasting for a cause. Well, I- I'm surprised at how well my, my brain functions Uh, I had no idea what this fast would uh, look like, but yeah, my brain is is functioning quite well. Uh, My body uh, doesn't quite follow suit and my stamina is minimal, but I'm still able to walk from room to room. And if I pace myself, (laughs) I can uh, get there without any calamities. And uh, by the way, I'm feeling very optimistic and upbeat, Uh, I'm tremendously uh, appreciative of the uh, uh, great support and interaction between all our colleagues in this coalition. It's just been wonderful. And it's great finally to to feel that uh, um, I'm involved in something uh, action-wise and uh, that makes a difference because This is a very important issue. I want to get into why it's important and what the issue is. And most people listening to this podcast probably have never heard that Canada is about to buy 88 fighter jets. Before we do that, I also want to check in with Vanessa. And I, I, you know, I honestly am concerned for both of you. Vanessa, how are you doing and how are you holding up? Thanks, Mark. Um, it, uh, it has been a struggle, not, not going to lie about that. The hunger pangs uh, really come in at night and, and the morning is a little bit difficult. Uh, you wake up very hungry in the morning and I realized that even drinking a couple big glasses of water, it's almost too much and you have to really pace yourself on the water even. So yes, it, it has been difficult and I, 
I echo Brendan's thoughts about the body not exactly keeping up, but this time has, has given me uh, a lot of space for reflection. In our lives, we do a lot uh, around food for grocery shopping, for cooking, meal prep, eating, cleaning up. So I've had a lot of time to reflect on why I'm doing this and, and what it means to me and for, for me. And also, I believe uh, Brendan is also very passionate about this, is the uh, humanitarian crisis in Yemen, where there's around 16 million starving and Canada continues to sell arms to Saudi Arabia, despite its horrible track record for human rights. Um, and I, you know, they just had the universe, uh, the anniversary of six years on the war in Yemen. And I can't imagine going that long, not just hungry, but facing war. So, you know, 12 days is, is hard, but I, I really, um, it, it's been a really good time for reflection on, on war and what food means and how we as Canadians can better support the world uh, instead of increasing military budgets and uh, money for weapons instead of things like food. I'm glad that you're pointing out that the act of fasting is is more than symbolic. Food is one of the primary things that can be a source of conflict and that people in war situations are deprived of. Can we briefly discuss the cause that is directly behind this? And I think maybe I'll, I'll turn to Brandon again first. Tell us about the cause. Tell us about the fighter jets. Uh, sure, I, I will tell you briefly, and perhaps Vanessa can elaborate. Last summer, our chapter in Vancouver hosted a uh, Zoom meeting, and uh, Tamara Lawrence from the Canadian Voice of Women for Peace, she introduced this uh, concern about the fact that the government of Canada is uh, intending and in the process of purchasing 88 fighter jets. These will have a tremendous effect on our climate, very deleterious. They will have an awful effect. They will wreak havoc on the people in Northern regions, indigenous and Inuit populations uh, because of their low, low frying, uh, frequent, uh, flyovers. Um, and of course, they will commit us to decades of war, uh, decades of war on poor countries, as we have been doing um, in alliance with uh, the United States over the past many years. And this is something we have to stop. It's bad for our citizens it's bad for people who make these decisions. It dehumanizes them. And um, it, it's just dreadful for uh, the countries that we bomb and we destroy, the infrastructure that we destroy. Um, so, and also we have to begin the process of demilitarization. We can transform our society by learning about the and, and spreading the word about the success of nonviolence. Uh, I mean, you know, 50 to 80 million people killed in World War II. And uh, this was not a success. And really, 
uh, you know, uh, the allies, as they're called, might claim uh, victory, but I think that the spirit of Hitler uh, was the ultimate victor because his spirit um, certainly uh, was involved in the bombing of um, the nuclear bombing of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the uh, dreadful bombing, the fire bombing of Dresden and many other cities, the complete disregard for life, the starvation of populations. It just goes on and on. Uh, there is a better way. Um, it's just that we have blinkers on and uh, many don't see it. Many are too busy, unfortunately. And I, I understand busyness. Um, but yes, there is certainly a better way. There is evidence to that uh, effect. Hmm. So moving, Brendan, and I think you've touched upon a lot of the different things that we often talk about at World Beyond War. Vanessa, how, how do you characterize the problem that you are here to, that you are trying to address? Yeah, I think, I think I'd have to support what Brendan was saying about Canada's increasing militarization. So not only are 88 fighter jets on the table, but we also have, uh, Canada has planned to buy 15 warships, um, drones, LAVs, attack helicopters, and this is not something that I hear any Canadian asking for. Um, my friends, my family, the people that I talk to about this campaign, they are concerned about their families, their jobs, their businesses, uh, transitioning to a green future, um, you know, among, among many other things. So I think, I think what really brought me onto this cause was just the, the misallocation of our tax dollars for things that Canadians don't want. And so I believe this campaign um, falls into a larger movement that we hope to really promote, which is um, demilitarization, disarmament, and changing our economy from a war economy to a peace economy. And that can be in a variety of ways, whether we uh, start a peace department or sign the nuclear ban treaty, but I want to see Canada taking more leadership in peace. And, uh, and so we're hoping to get some awareness and some publicity and to reach more Canadians about this issue by doing uh, different and creative protest actions like this fast. Absolutely, absolutely. It appears to me that while Canada's anti-war movement is growing, and you know, bless you all for being part of that, um, it also seems to me that Canada's militarism is growing. And I think the fact that the movement is growing, sadly, may be a response to the fact that the, the problem is growing. Now, Rachel, a, a little background here. I've been part of World Beyond War for a little over three years. We had a conference in Toronto a few years ago. It was a wonderful experience. And that, I believe, was really where we started to, to put down roots in Canada as an organization. We are very much a global organization. We made a decision to hire Rachel as our Canada organizer because this is such a key issue. So Rachel, um, I know you, you would take the, an entire hour to tell us everything about Canada, but what is going on in Canada? 
Sure, I'll try to give uh, <laughs> an elevator version. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think it is really important when we're talking about this planned warplane purchase, which, by the way, the Canadian government has been trying to make for over 10 years now, and it's been stalled, it's been protested, it's been blocked, so we can win this. It's a tough battle, but we can get this purchase cancelled, and that's what we're fighting for. This is not a done deal. This is our year to end this, and that's why we're escalating tactics. That's why Brendan and Vanessa are not eating for 12 days like that's a very serious commitment and i think that's a sign of the importance and the power in this struggle but yes the warplanes are just a one piece of a much broader canadian uh problem i'm gonna say just one thing about the fighter jets before i move broader they have really only one purpose which is to drop bombs um, they have many associated problems, and it's very important that we talk about the climate impacts, that we talk about the cost. That we, but these fighter jets, this, there's only one thing they're designed to do, and that's to drop bombs elsewhere in the world. They're designed to do the exact same thing that the last generation of bomber jets did, and we already know that they killed civilians, disproportionately children, that they explicitly targeted infrastructure, that they left millions without safe drinking water, um, as part of their bombing missions in Libya, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Syria, as part of NATO missions, as part of US-led wars. That's what the current generation of Canadian fighter jets does. That's what this current, this next planned purchase is intended to do. So I just want us to be real. We're not buying these like multi-use jets. We're buying bomber jets, uh, or they're trying to buy 88 of them. Um, we don't need them. Even the former uh, Deputy Minister of Defense has said Canada doesn't face any credible threats. These have nothing to do with protecting Canada's populace or sovereignty. So they have nothing to do with our own security. They have to do with bombing people in far off parts of the world. I keep thinking about this quote from an article from Georges Monbiot, a, a writer and sort of political theorist. Um, I'm going to read it. He said, if ever there was a time to reassess the genuine threats to our security, and separate them from the self-interested aims of the weapons industry, this is the time. And I feel like part of why this campaign is picking up this year is because it just has never been more clear that security does not come from dropping bombs. I've heard Vanessa repeat, you can't bomb COVID, <laughs> you can't bomb poverty. Like it, it's so clear what are the real security issues that we face and both Brendan and Vanessa have so powerfully talked about that. Um, really briefly, like what is the Canadian military doing right now? Um, recent polling showed that uh, most Canadians want Canada's military role to focus on peacekeeping, to focus on disaster relief. It's not at all, unfortunately, what the Canadian military is doing. Canada is becoming a bigger and bigger arms dealer. We're the second biggest weapons supplier to the Middle East. Vanessa spoke about how one of the main reasons she's fasting is drawing attention to the fact that Canadian tanks, billions of dollars worth are going to Saudi Arabia right now are being used in Yemen. Um, that's unfortunately not the outlier. Canada is a major weapons supplier, um, including uh, documented use in the struggle in Armenia this past year. Um, that's one thing the Canadian militarism is doing around the world. Canadian military is playing a major role in accelerating the climate crisis. Biggest of all government emissions is from the Canadian military. 
in Canada. We also uh, know that the Canadian military is used to continue colonization in Canada itself. So not only is our military efforts causing climate crisis itself, the military is being used to surveil and to enact violence against people at the climate front lines. So we're, we're talking about Indigenous people who are leading blockades at pipelines, who are stopping clear cut of forests, then the Canadian military is being brought in to surveil them and to shut down their climate resistance. Um, also within Canada, the military has been ramping up its domestic surveillance and propaganda. There was a huge leak just this past year where it turns out that they um, had hired Cambridge Analytica, the same company at the center of the huge scandal in the United States connected to data being shared with Donald Trump and Ted Cruz, et cetera. So the military had spent more than a million dollars on controversial propaganda, propaganda training from Cambridge Analytica. That's just what was leaked recently. We know there's more. And I'll just say maybe one thing, the, the federal budget just came out this week and it unfortunately shows a continuing of the same trend, which is a huge ballooning of our military budget. It's already increased 70% in just a few years. That means that we're continuing a path where we're spending at least 20 times on the military as we do on the environment. So we have this weird situation in Canada where we have a prime minister who's talking endlessly about how he's prioritizing climate and it's a feminist foreign policy and this and this. He talks probably 50 times as much about the environment as the military, but where is the money? It's in the opposite direction. I could go on, as you said, but I'll, I'll cut it off there. Well, I'm really glad that you're pointing out that this specific movement, this specific action to stop the purchase of these 88 jets is not a done deal. And it's really good that you're reminding us of that because I think in the anti-war movement, we're so accustomed to the terrible fate of of fighting against something so much bigger than us. So, so there is actually some chance that this will not happen and that there will be a, a victory for the anti-war movement here. And We're giving it our best shot. We're really trying. Wow. And they haven't gotten it for 10 years. So that's 10 years that they haven't had new bomber jets. So any amount further that we can push this without them getting their ADA jets, the fewer people are being killed by them. What is the political situation in Canada relating to these, you know, I, I understand what, what's going on in terms of the military expanding its size, but what is the word on the street? What are the people saying about this? What are the politics behind these 88 fighter jets? I mean, the word on the street is that people are unaware. That is the huge, huge issue. People are completely unaware. Very few that I've encountered uh, have been aware of this. So that's the, the major challenge. And uh, certainly we just have to get ordinary Canadians involved. Uh, the second thing is, uh, from my knowledge of political parties, and there are four, um, as far as I know, none of the political parties have voted against this, uh, uh, this fighter jet, jet um, issue. Uh, I mean, uh, others may correct me on that, but that's my understanding. That, that answers it. I mean, really what you said is, is so familiar in the anti-war movement that it's not that, the political situation is not that there's a mass swell of support for this, but rather that people are simply not aware 
and probably greedy and self-interested parties within the, the military establishment are taking advantage of the fact that people are unaware. And for that reason, I'm so glad that you three are all involved in bringing awareness. Yeah, I, I have to echo what Brendan was saying. Um, the majority of Canadians, the, the fighter jets are not on their radar at all. They are, they are dealing with, uh, with the pandemic and the fallout from that. So it is, it is a struggle, um, but this is the second largest procurement in Canadian history. And if we did a poll about how many Canadians actually know about it, I imagine it would be very, very low because nobody, nobody knows about this huge investment in weapons that Canada is, is, is doing. So because of you know, not a lot of public awareness, it feels like the media is not picking it up, whether intentional or unintentional, because not enough people are talking about it. But that just fuels a cycle where if the media is not reporting on it, then the, the public doesn't know. Um, so it's been, it's been very difficult to try to get media coverage. I know some people have been successful. Um, recently, uh, Leah Gazin, an NDP, MP, uh, she actually did mention the fighter jets um, on a panel uh, calling out the, the Liberal government. But other than that, it's been very quiet um, from what I know on the political end, and I've been trying to keep up. <laughs> there are some very progressive politicians, there are some amazing people in power, um, but I think it's a very difficult stance to take. It, it ends up being spun, of course, as a, how can you not support our troops? They're flying these ancient airplanes that are falling apart. Don't you want them to be safe? I think that's one trap that people sort of get pulled into. Um, but I, I, yeah, I think right now it's very hard for any sitting politician to speak out against, uh, basically for downsizing the Canadian military, for not continuing to expand it, to not continue to make major military acquisitions, to not like keep up with NATO. I, it's a, it's, I suspect that we can get to a place where a few people break ranks and then maybe we'll find that the number of people in favor is much higher than we thought. But right now, people are very hesitant to take that stand publicly. And I do want to commend Leah Gazan, the NDP MP, who recently spoke out against the fighter jet purchase. I'd like to ask all three of you, how did you become drawn into the entire movement? You know, and I'm not talking specifically, but, you know, I'm taking it back to your youth or what, whenever it was that you became inspired or became motivated. Where did that motivation come from? What is behind it? Um, tell us the story of how you became an activist. Yes, thank you. Well, uh, when I arrived in Canada for the second time, uh, 1981, I had a chance to read a little about the uh, war in Vietnam. And uh, I read a book by a, uh, a helicopter pilot. Uh, the book was Chicken Hawk. And he was uh, suffering tremendous post-traumatic uh, disorder. Uh, and uh, he was uh, rather suicidal. Um, and he talked about the uh, incredible futility and insanity of what they were doing um, in, in the war. And uh, as far as I remember to him, 
it the war did not uphold any um, any real values that he could look up to. And I do remember the carpet bombing uh, of Cambodia and Vietnam. And uh, that was way back when I thought there were uh, good people and bad people. But this opened my eyes uh, to realize that, uh, that violence is the enemy, war is the enemy. And then I read about Gandhi and uh, the central importance of truth, nonviolence, ahimsa, etc. And uh, my Catholic faith, I was brought up Catholic and I still am. Um, God's second greatest commandment, love thy neighbor, uh, has been very influential for me. And I'm so glad that we, that our current Pope is uh, speaking out uh, against militarism and for peace and for people who are uh, marginalized and poor, uh, very inspired by him. And he's also trying to drag our church away from the uh, just war nonsense. And uh, then in the year 2000, my kids were mostly finished um, high school. And I woke up to the uh, realization that uh, 1 billion people were living on the planet on a uh, dollar a day or less. And uh, I began to read this around the time that uh, I learned that every person has the ability to affect change. And of course, we all see conflict brought to us on the six o'clock news. And uh, now I know that we all have a role to play in this. This is preventable. Um, I worked in Zimbabwe just for a couple of months in 2010 under the direction of an amazing uh, doctor from uh, Toronto. His name is Paul Thistle. And uh, that moved me very much. I was just so, so thankful that I was able to see how people live in other parts of the world. Uh, how these people who are living under uh, Mugabe's rule were uh, suffering. I hope to return every two years, but I was unable to do so. And then I realized, hey, we can do more good at, at home by stopping Canada from fueling conflict and exporting arms and our foreign policies. The world beyond war, uh, the no war 2018 World Beyond War conference in Toronto. Uh, after the fact, I was able to see that online. And that's when I discovered World Beyond War. And uh, it was uh, life-changing for me in terms of uh, peace building. And uh, I joined the group the following year. Um, and the resources there are tremendous. Some incredibly wonderful people that I've had the privilege to uh, listen to and sometimes to speak with. Thank you, um, can't agree enough. Vanessa, I, I sense your path has been somewhat different. Tell us how you came to be here today. Yeah, I was, I was thinking about this question and uh, 
I don't know if I quite have a, a pinpoint moment. I feel like it's more of like a slow burn into a bonfire, which it is right now. <laughs> um, but when I was growing up, I was always concerned about the environment. I used to pick up trash on recess. Um, and I, I was very involved in my community, but I, I come from a very small town of about 1500 people. Um, so I didn't have a lot of exposure to, to many things, but when I was uh, 16, I was offered the opportunity to go on a Rotary Youth Exchange. So I ended up going to Mexico for a year of school, and I saw there a lot of differences between my country uh, in Canada and, and Mexico, and I noticed things like, you know, at the corner store, they don't charge tax. And but then on the, the sidewalks, you have to watch out because you can actually break your ankle because the potholes and the sidewalk um, is falling apart. And I could start to see these direct correlations between, um, you know, our, our tax money and what it is used for. And I remember very distinctly uh, driving in the car with my with my host Mexican mother um, and I saw these two children and they looked like they were fighting they were rolling around on the median in between it was like an eight lane highway and I asked her like what are those children doing what why are they in the middle of the road and they did not look um, you know like they were being taken care of and they were rolling around very close to the road and I was really scared and she you know she told me that you know, their parents might be, might be drunks. So I don't know if I agree with her statement, but um, you know, and, and there are no social services to take care of them. And, you know, being in a different country and seeing, you know, different political systems, um, it made me realize how much of a difference a good political system um, can make you know, Canada and, and its citizens. So that's when I really got interested in uh, politics. So then I went to the University of Victoria and studied political science, uh, mostly trying to understand what makes a good society. And, and from that, uh, I was able to um, get an internship in Tanzania where I worked for a children's rights organization. And then after that, uh, I had a year-long contract in Ghana working on youth livelihoods. Um, and it was, th these are all just incredible experiences allowing me to see different systems and how it helps or hinders people. And pretty much after that, I ended up getting this role at the Canadian Voice of Women for Peace. And throughout my life, I've always thought that to combat the climate crisis and and poverty, um, you know, all of our all of our issues here in Canada, we would need to somehow come up with the funds. We would need to make these somehow. But when I started when I started this role and started, um, you know, meeting regularly with Tamara Lawrence, and she showed me how much of our Canadian tax dollars goes to the military. And, you know, our national identity as peacekeepers, as, you know, we are, we are not American warmongers type of thing. That is our national identity. And I realized what a waste of our tax dollars uh, was going to the military when Canadians are not really 
proud to have, you know, a, a military that's going off and, and bombing people. This is not what Canadians see themselves as. And so that's when I became very, very invested, as you can tell by my 12 day fast um, in redirecting, you know, Canadian tax dollars to our current crises, not ones that we are going to make worse in the future by bombing. Um, and, and that's really how it came about. Um, I'm just interested in making the world a better place, social justice and creating political systems that work for its citizens and, and don't create uh, worse problems for people in other countries. Wow. Well, so inspiring. And this is why I love to ask this question because I love to hear the answers. Um, Rachel, I've never had the chance to ask you this question even though I've known you for a bit. Um, how did you get here? It's a great question, and it's it's not one I'm used to thinking about or, or answering. I think similar to Vanessa, I was a really young kid who was like really stressed about the planet. I was like, I remember like not being able to sleep when I was seven or eight because I had learned about the ozone layer, and I was like having nightmares about how we literally wouldn't have a livable planet. And that was sort of pre-panic, pre-panic about climate change. That was just about the ozone layer. Um, so yeah, I think I was always sort of a concerned kid. Um, I, uh, grew up in, in Montreal, Quebec. And when I, uh, sort of finished CEGEP, sort of the equivalent of kind of grade 12 and 13, I ended up quitting school and, and going, uh, sort of saving up money to, to travel somewhere I'd always wanted to go, which was the Amazon rainforest, I think probably since I was seven or eight and watching Fern Gully and stressed about those in there. So I finally went and um, learned Spanish, spent a year traveling, but more than that, really discovered in the, the rainforest in Ecuador that it, it wasn't so much a local issue that was imperiling the Amazon rainforest. It was actually companies based in Canada and the United States that were um, at that point engaged in humongous oil spills across a huge range of Ecuador, but also huge mining operations. And I, I started to look back towards home in, in a really different uh, light and started to see that the messaging I had sort of been absorbing my whole life, like, oh, people from here need to go there to recognize the rainforest. It's like, oh no, actually I need to go home and look at what our Canadian companies doing here. Um, and that sort of started me on kind of a lifelong path, uh, really focusing on resource extraction and how do we um, act here to uh, in support and in solidarity with people uh, around the world and their efforts at, at land defense, at defending their communities. Um, the reason I moved to Toronto is essentially because Toronto is the belly of the beast for the global mining industry, or so we call it. Um, vast majority of mines around the world are owned by Canadian companies who are based right here in Toronto on, on Bay Street, which is like our Wall Street. And, um, and once you start looking at extractivism, at sort of the, the corporate profits that really drive uh, the destruction of the earth, the theft of Indigenous land around the world, um, there's really very tight connections to all sorts of other social movements. I mean, I've been an abolitionist for a long time in terms of uh, working with and believing that we need to abolish all institutes of state violence, institutions of state violence, we need to abolish the police, 
need to abolish uh, prisons, need to abolish borders. This is my political philosophy. And, and more recently been thinking more about, of course, the military is part of that. Of course, we also need to abolish the military and abolish war. Um, and I think it's, it's one thing that has been very interesting for me about being a parent to a very small kid is it's sort of reinforce something that I think I always believed, which is that humans inherently understand injustice, regardless of if we've grown up in like relatively more privileged, more fortunate circumstances, or whether we've grown up dealing with multiple layers of oppression. I think we all inherently understand injustice. A two-year-old can tell you perfectly clearly when something is not fair. <laughs> um, and, and what are the ways that we stay awake to that, that we stay connected to that throughout our lives, and that we, don't pit our injustices against each other, but but really connect around, um, yeah, what we knew was right when we were kids. How do we actually build a fairer world for everyone? So I try and stay connected to that. I feel right, right now in my life, a very strong sense of responsibility. I often think about it sort of towards my bubby, who's sort of my oldest relative and a very important person in my life, but who as a Jew came to North America during a generation when like almost everyone she knew was killed in the Holocaust. So in terms of a commitment to fight fascism, a commitment to look at um, violence in society at that big level. And then my commitment to my kid who's four. Um, so the 98 year old and the four year old and like, well, how do I look back? How do I look forward is often what I think about when I'm feeling stuck in my activism. What, what should drive me? What's really important? What's really fair and not fair? It's more or less where I'm at now. And I was very lucky to um, really stumble on world beyond war at a time when I really wanted to dedicate my time to an organization that doesn't compromise, that isn't scared to take those bold abolitionist stances. No, we're not going to justify why this war is maybe okay, why this weapon's less good than this weapon. Like, no, let's fight for the world that we dream of. Well, World Beyond War is also very happy to have you here, Rachel. Um, and um, you, you've been very active in getting some protests started. I want to ask you, Rachel, about a photograph that I, I thought was amazing of you holding, it looks like you're basically holding back a large truck delivering <laughs> as a truck driver is yelling at you or pulling at you. Um, please t tell us about that. It's so rare that a very, um like interesting and exciting moment is actually captured on, on film. Um, that exact moment that was captured was when uh, a number of us uh, had gathered in Hamilton at the trucking company who we had discovered thanks to other people's diligent research over years is the trucking company that transports uh, LAVs, light armored vehicles, essentially tanks, produced in London, Ontario. They, they're transported by truck uh, from Hamilton south across the U.S. border to port, where they're then shipped to Saudi Arabia, where we've also seen documented evidence of them being used in Yemen. So lots of really interesting and sneaky corporate research, connecting with train spotters, multiple people's like PhD work over many years, led to us having the information to realize, hey, if we can show up at this spot, we can actually block the ability, at least for one day, of these tanks to be able to move um, literally right down the street from me on the highway in Canada, rolling right by my house on their way to Yemen, the worst humanitarian crisis in the planet right now. 
So we decided that it was worth the risk for us. Um, we took all the necessary precautions. We had lawyers ready to support us, um, but we took a really strong stance that day of actually blocking those trucks from being able to leave uh, the facility. That day was uh, January 25th, 2021, which had been declared the global day to end the war on Yemen. So there we were in Hamilton, but we knew at the same time people all around the world um, with the hugest protests, of course, being in Yemen itself, um, were standing up to say, uh, we need to end this war, this, this senseless, Saudi-led, US-backed, Canada-armed war that uh, has killed hundreds of thousands of people already. Rachel, did you mean to put yourself in danger uh, um, by blocking trucks? And how does that, how, how did you feel about physically blocking trucks with your body? Frankly, we were surprised by how aggressive the truck drivers were. I have blocked trucks before on public roads. Uh, this, I think, uh, I think they were more aggressive because we were blocking trucks from leaving their own facility on their own property. Um, so to be honest, we were surprised. Uh, within five minutes of us being there, they were determined to drive the trucks out. Uh, they were sort of trying to drive the trucks into us. Um, and I think a bunch of us sort of quickly decided uh, at a moment where they were sort of stopped, hey, we're going to sit down in front of these trucks. Um, and I mean, you, actions, direct actions are tricky and you think ahead of time about what risks you're willing to take. I, I was not willing to be run over by a truck. And I guess in that moment, we, we decided that if a bunch of us sat down they probably weren't going to drive into us. But I mean, later I can look back and, and maybe I didn't make the right decision. Like maybe they could have slipped off the brake and, and maybe it wasn't the right decision to make. But in, in that moment, a bunch of us made the call that if we stood our ground, literally sat down on the road or, or sort of tried to brace ourselves in front of it, that, uh, that they wouldn't drive into us and that we would succeed. And, and they did ultimately just stop driving the trucks when the truckers got out. And ultimately, the police cleared us out a few hours later. Vanessa, I'd like to know, do you feel you're putting yourself at physical danger right now? And how do you sort of think about the, what you're doing with your body right now by fasting for 12 days? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is, I mean, it's a more or less controlled fast. So I, I don't have to uh, leave my house for work right now. So it is a pretty safe uh, environment, but it is also very exhausting. Like I remember um, I woke up in the middle of the night to get a glass of water and I stood up and then my vision started to get a little bit blurry and sparkly and I was worried that I was going to to faint. So I do have that worry uh, um, because it, you know, it is uh it, it is a risk. Um, and I have seen people faint before from not eating. So I'm also acutely aware um, that that is a possibility. But, um, you know, I think I think the risk is is worth it right now. I, I eat regularly, not on fast. Uh, so I think I can I think I can take 14 days without food. Um, and and still survive. And I think that the that the attention that I'm getting um, you know, from my Facebook friends and Instagram friends and, and from the work that the No Fighter Jets Coalition is putting out there. And thanks to you, World Beyond War, for having us on for this fast. Um, I think the attention is good. So I, I think that it's worth it. 
and uh, I know I know that I'll bounce back. <laughs> Brendan, before asking you the same question, I want to throw in a couple of extra elements. One is that you are a medical doctor, so you probably know very, very well what you're doing to your body. <laughs> and number two, you mentioned Gandhi, a, a legendary hunger striker. Hunger strikes were one of his main tools of changing the world, right? Um, other yes. strikers I could think of are Bobby Sands, um, yes. and you know, thankfully we're we're not we're not talking about um, a, a fast that threatens your lives at this point. I hope, but in light of both being a medical doctor and a reader of Mahatma Gandhi, <laughs> Brendan, same question to you: How do you think about what you are going through physically? Uh, thank you, Mark. Uh, first, I want to say I feel it's a great privilege to have heard Vanessa and Rachel speak. And, uh, you know, I'm so in agreement uh, with what they say, and I'm just uh, awed by what they are doing and what they have done. Uh, that's the first thing. Secondly, uh, with regard to medical knowledge, I have to say that this is not an issue we speak about in medical circles, uh, prolonged fasting. Uh, there is some talk about refeeding syndrome, about the fact that uh, things can go haywire metabolically uh, if food is not introduced uh, slowly enough and if uh, precautions are not taken with uh, regard to replacing certain magnesium and phosphate and various uh, things like that. So I'm aware of that, but uh, largely, uh, you know, I, I have been inspired by, as you said, Gandhi and uh, Kathy Kelly and her group um, uh, from uh, the United States. And uh, the fact that she fasted for 28 days, um, uh, that's very inspiring to me. Uh, she was uh, trying to bring attention to the uh, nuclear dreadful problem in the United States. So, and, and of course, uh, the work she has done in, uh, in, in countries uh, that the United States has been bombing, getting herself in, in the, the middle of that situation and being in living solidarity with the people. But uh, with regard to danger to life, yeah, you know, I, I think there is, uh, being 69, I think there is a small risk. But I think, hey, I will have food on Saturday. People in Yemen, they are starving now. And every 75 seconds, another child dies. And this is on our hands. This is on our country's hands. And the, the international uh, peoples just have to put a stop to this. Yeah, I, I know what Vanessa is talking about uh, with regard to feeling a bit dizzy. Uh, luckily, I haven't fainted, but it's on my mind. <laughs> I'm ready to... Uh, drop down and become flash if I if I feel that, but uh, as I said, I'm just astounded at the way this body that our Creator give gave us uh, how it functions. 
our body will consume uh, some of its non-vital parts while, while starving and, and preserve for a long time the vital parts. And, and this body comes usually free. It doesn't cost uh, $260 million like a, a jet fighter does. And it's uh, usually got twice the lifespan of a jet fighter. So uh, the bodies we have been given are just amazing, amazing bodies. Wow. Um, I think we're getting around to last question, but before then I'd like to know, do any of you have questions for each other? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think um, this has really been an eye-opening uh, creative form of protest and I'm looking forward to uh, what's next, what's coming up next for the No Fighter Jets Coalition. So um, maybe Brendan or Rachel, if you have any ideas what you would like to see the, the coalition do next, uh, any upcoming events, um, I would love to, love to collaborate. Um, well, one thing that's on my mind is to, uh, I, I spoke, uh, I mentioned the success of nonviolence. Uh, I think it would be helpful to invite all members of parliament to a Zoom meeting or Zoom meetings, uh, just to meet with them in a non-confrontational manner, have them as honored guests, uh, only mention the no fighter jets uh, issue in passing, but just talk about the success of nonviolence because I can't really believe that they know about the success of nonviolence and still do what they do. So that's, uh, that's one thing I would like to see. And um, I think Mark has uh, one more question and I will leave uh, the rest uh, to, for answering that question. Brendan, I'm glad you're pointing out the good work done by people like Kathy Kelly, Tamara Lawrence. Um, these are people who are very much involved in everything we do at World Beyond War and are inspirations to all of us. I had forgotten, actually, that Kathy Kelly had fasted as well, and she's actually a member of our board. Also, Farkan is the Vancouver chapter leader, Brendan, who I think you interact with in Vancouver. So just want to shout out to these people. Really, what I'd like to do is ask each of you, and I'm going to start with Rachel, what is it about either the anti-war movement or the movement in general? Because I think to many of us, I'm, it's not different movements. We're, we're, there are many different causes, but we're all pointing towards the same thing. And I, I want to, again, right now, just say thank you for making time to be here. This is, this is a very different podcast for me, and it feels different um, because just of the seriousness the seriousness that you're demonstrating with what you're doing. And that includes you too, Rachel, throwing yourself in front of a, a truck <laughs> on their own property. Um, yep. So Rachel, what, what would you like to say about the anti-war movement in general or all the movements we're involved in? I think the anti-war movement, um, yes, all our movements for justice are connected. I think the anti-war movement is, is similar in some ways to the struggles around climate crisis or anti-capitalist struggles in that it just seems 
so huge and so all-encompassing. I'm uh, like a, I'm a big fan of of poetry and of literature, and I'm always thinking in terms of of quotes. So maybe I'll I'll share an Ursula Le Guin quote that I think about all the time. Um, she said, "We live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings." I think uh, that we just live in a war world right now, and it is almost hard to imagine ourselves into another place, but war is a violent institution created by humans. We as humans can change it. And when I think about all the time as an organizer is that sometimes we see a huge movement and we don't realize what are the roles that just such a small number of people can do. I mean, one person on their own, as we've seen here, can fast and connect to other people, can take action with their own body, can write a piece of writing, two people together um, can suddenly brainstorm, can bring new ideas forward, um, can write to their local media, can stand a vigil somewhere. Once you've got three or four people, you've actually got like a committee, a group who can take real concerted action together, who can launch a chapter of whatever organization. Um, once you've got five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 people, you are a real contingent to be dealt with politically and can organize larger events, can you yourselves have a protest? I mean, it goes on and on, but just such a small number of people um, can affect real change. And you don't need to start from a place of expertise. I think you need to start from a place of looking around you, even the global institution of war and the military industrial complex. What does that look like in my town? What does, uh, I don't know if many people in Hamilton realize that these giant LAVs en route to Saudi Arabia were right in their own backyard. We all have these demons in our backyards and, and what can we do about it super locally? That's what I think about a lot. And what I wish um, more people knew, I guess, is the power they themselves have. Great, Rachel, thank you. Vanessa, I'm gonna throw the same question to you. Yeah, this is this is something that I personally get very excited about um, because I, I know that, you know, people that we know, family, friends, uh, there there are a lot of things that we are concerned about. We're concerned about, you know, the climate. Um, we're concerned about jobs, um, you know, affordable housing. We're concerned about a lot of different things. But what excites me is that disarmament is an opportunity to really redirect our funds to help all of those problems. Uh, as we discussed before, the military budget is huge and we just committed $553 billion for the next 20 years. I'm sure it'll be even more than that, to be honest. Um, so if you're concerned about climate, join the anti-war movement. If you're concerned about not having um, about schools and teachers not having enough support, join the anti-war movement, move this money. We can, we can really collaborate and connect with so many different movements because of the, the literal jackpot of money that the military is sitting on for weapons that I believe that Canadians don't even want. Um, so, you know, on, on top of that, uh, we in the peace movement are a very fun group. So I think, I think everyone should join the peace movement. 
I love it that you said that. I have not been an anti-war activist my whole life. I've been involved in many other things, but I came to this late. And I would agree that anti-war activists are good people. <laughs> and I can't say that loudly enough. Brendan, same question to you. Yes, I, I think all of these uh, issues are related. They're all forms of injustice. And by the way, I should uh, mention that we're uplifted by the fact that uh, George Floyd's murder is now being uh, treated with justice. And there is, um, there is hope that uh, the George Floyd uh, Act will be passed uh, by the uh, Congress and the Senate. I think what makes or breaks a movement such as the anti-war movement is whether people of ordinary ability join. I'm a person of ordinary ability. You know, I could say also that I came to this late, but I have been, uh, it has burned my soul for many years that people live in such deprived conditions and that we, uh, are playing a part to keep them down. So ordinary people are, are required for the success of this movement. And with regard to that, uh, we are asking every Canadian to get involved. Uh, I'm suggesting that Canadians just write two sentences, two lines to their member of parliament. Do not purchase fighter jets speak up in parliament to uh, speak up in parliament against this purchase uh, those two lines will work no matter what party the member of parliament is and it's not necessary to uh, get into an elaborate debate with your member of parliament that just gives uh, the mp uh, your opinion about how you're feeling and uh, if we get thousands of letters across Canada uh, saying that it will have will be great it will greatly assist in stopping the purchase of these fighter jets. And maybe I'll just add that uh, the No Fighter Jets Coalition, which is really made up of groups and individuals all across Canada and beyond, um, has a website at nofighterjets.ca. And so a lot of uh, resources are there. There's a big take action button right at the top that also makes it easy to do some of what Brendan's suggesting in terms of getting in touch with elected officials. So if you're looking for somewhere for more info, uh, that would be a great spot. Well, with that, I think we will wrap up. Um, I am so inspired by all three of you, really, and by all, all of us and all of what we're doing. Let's stop those fighter jets. Thank you so much. Um, it's been really inspiring to have you here. Thank you. They even hold your money. Banks say they keep it safe, but they ain't doing things the right way. Invested in their war machine. Time to tell the mothership this is not the way to go. It's time to save a soul. There's someone falling down. Change it all, we can end this strife. This is how we set it off from top to bottom. We just flow, we're rising up to take down and justice in all its form. We can do it on our own. Cause we've been that was Amekura Elabois, 
and the song is called We Can Do It. Yes, we can. In the podcast you just listened to, we talked a lot about World Beyond War's previous global conferences. Well, you can come to our next one. The No War 2021 virtual conference is World Beyond War's next annual gathering, and it includes a focus on many of the topics we talked about today, including Canada's militarism. No War 2021, from weapons fairs to war zones, unraveling the war machine, June 4th to 6th, 2021. We'll all be there, and you can interact with peace activists from all over the world. Register for the next World Beyond War conference now at worldbeyondwar.org, or just search for the hashtag NoWar2021. Oh, my God.